you're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. Hello. Hello, Larry. That's nice. Good. Howdy. Good. Processing. That's our topic here. The crucial use of the here and now. Another way to talk about processing is to say it's the center of the second shift. I will be discussing processing rather briefly during the evening lectures when I get to the second shift, but we're going to do it a little more workshoppy style this afternoon as we think through how to make that second shift from stage two to stage three. Why did you come to a seminar or to a workshop on processing? With all the options, why would that cause you to come? What did you come expecting to hear? You've tried doing it and it's been hard. All right? Yeah. Uh, but you heard us talk about it in the basic seminar and it struck you as important and although we didn't talk about it much, we did emphasize it as something which is crucial. And um, so you'd like to know what we're talking about when we say here's a crucial something or other. There's a whole lot of things going on in interpersonal transactions that we stubbornly refuse to attend to. And thereby we miss many opportunities to deal with things that really are of crucial significance. Let me just uh, talk about processing according to the outline that you have in your notebooks there. And I want to get through some material. Let me just ramble for a bit through the outline and say some things you've already heard me say before and then move into some new material. And then we'll try to illustrate what we're talking about a little bit. Okay? Um, We do see processing as the center of the second shift. We do see that to help a person move from seeing themselves as a victim to seeing themselves as an agent, that the most powerful way to accomplish that is to help a person see what he's doing right now in his relationship with you that reflects his self-protection. To help a person see what he's doing right now in his relationship with you, the counselor, the friend, the pastor, the Sunday school teacher. When he's able to see what he's doing right now in his relationship with you, that really uh, is... a a current live example of a self-protection, that brings the truth home with power. I mentioned in an earlier talk, I don't know where I said this, I've been talking in different places here this week, I'm not sure if I said it to the broad audience or in an earlier workshop, but the notion that um, for somebody to say that that I have sinned is a sentence that doesn't have a whole lot of power. Each, Each of us in this room would very willingly say, I have sinned. That's why we've all clung to the cross. Uh, many of us would say, I sinned. But to say, I am sinning, is a rather different sort of a sentence. And processing directs a person to be able to to, to see that what the real core of their difficulty in living is, is is something which is happening right now and it's wrong, and it's morally wrong. And to be able to say, right now, here's my problem, I am sinning. Processing is helping a person getting to that kind of a stage where conviction becomes a much more gripping reality, where repentance then follows conviction and real change takes place. Um, You saw a little bit in a very loose uh, sense of of what I mean by processing in the tape this morning with Mike. Um, I I did something that can loosely be called processing by talking about the interaction he and I had over the buffet table. Now, the reason that I wouldn't call that in a real clean technical sense processing, it wasn't what was happening right then between Mike and me at that moment in the actual hour. It was talking about an earlier event. But we, and in one sense, processed the earlier event, talking about, Mike, did you see what you were doing to me right then, uh, two weeks ago at the buffet table, when you said to me, Larry, how you doing? And I said, fine, thanks, and walked away. And then you just kind of, 
and moved away from me. Can you see what you were doing back then two weeks ago? And can you see what you're doing right now as you interact with me? And now it gets more formally processing. As you bring it up to me, what do you bring it up to me for? Why are you saying to me, Larry, I was annoyed? Remember how he said the word annoyed? Larry, I was annoyed. Now, do you hear, as I emphasize it, I was annoyed? Do you hear the emphasis there? And can you see what I mean by processing? I want to bring out what he's doing right now and saying that to me. I want him to understand that he's really sinfully self-protecting himself right now. It's a deficiency of love in his relationship with me right now. I want to bring that out. So processing is a way of bringing home the reality of sinfulness in a way that is gripping and therefore can lead to meaningful repentance. You're going to hear me uh, in, the, in the evening lecture, not tonight I don't think, but tomorrow night, uh, talking a lot about repentance. And I really want you to tune into that a lot. Um, and in our, in our mind, that's the center of the whole thing. If you don't understand repentance, you don't understand change. Um, and and uh, to, to process really is nothing more than setting somebody up, don't hear that harshly, but setting somebody up for the opportunity to really meaningfully repent of what they're doing that's so, so wretchedly wrong that's getting in the way of the work of the Spirit in their life. Let me just repeat myself about some other points on your outline. The key assumption we make, which gives processing its power, if this assumption is not true, then processing has no place. The assumption that we make, a key assumption, is that beneath every problem is a defensive relational strategy, and let me add to that the corollary, beneath every problem is a defensive relational strategy which is going to show itself in every substantive relationship the person has. Every, every substantive. Yeah, maybe it wouldn't show itself in some casual, in the hallway, bantering back and forth. It might show itself there. But in every substantive relationship, in every meaningful encounter, meaningful at any level at all, there, there's going to be some evidence of that strategy which really defines the problem. You see, here's where we just have to get very clear about what we're trying to communicate, and then once you understand what we're saying, you can reject it or accept it. But our position is that, that when you're counseling with somebody and they, and they present you a problem, uh, what you need to do is very much like the physician. When I go to him and say, Doctor, I have a headache, uh, his, his mind, I presume we have some doctors here, you can help me if I'm right, but I presume what his mind does when, he, when I tell him I have a headache is he's saying to himself, I wonder what the problem is. I hear the, the presenting problem, which is causing my patient distress, he has a headache. But I want to know whether or not that headache is a, simply a tension headache, he ought to sleep more or take a break, take a vacation. Is it a brain tumor? Is it some other kind of a disease? What's going on? I need to know what the problem is. And because of his training, he has some facility to uh, sort through the possible problems to determine the cause of the headache. Now, a, a client comes to me with depression. And I want to say, what's the problem? We make a very key assumption. We make a key assumption that behind every presenting problem, that the real action takes place at the level of how people relate. That's the issue. You and I were built for relationship. We were made for relationship. And because of the fall, we relate wrongly. Because of the fall, we relate unbiblically. We relate not in a way that reflects the character of God, who is love and who is truth, but rather we relate in a way that protects ourselves from experiencing more of the relational pain that we felt in, uh, in, our, in our previous years. So the real problem I'm looking for, the disease beneath the headache, the real problem beneath the surface problem, is always going to be some relational strategy. Is that point real clear? I know you've heard me say it ten times now this week. Hope you aren't getting bored by it. But that's just a very central point. Yeah? What would be alternative to you? Uh, you obviously chose, you could pick a number of keys up like maybe it's Oh, dozens of possibilities, I suppose. You could talk about emotional fixation, that the real problem is the person has 
a whole bunch of strangulated affect, that there's been certain uh, painful emotions that have occurred earlier in their early in their life at a childhood trauma level and that they have not dealt with the affect properly by appropriate discharge. This is primal therapy, which I'm basically talking about now. And that because of certain emotions which have not been properly discharged, those emotions are like poison in the system. And what needs to be done is to find the problem of the poisoning undischarged emotions and have them discharged. That's one viewpoint. It's not ours. Another viewpoint would be the person doesn't know the scriptures well enough. The person simply needs more knowledge. My, my concern with that is a whole lot of people have a whole lot of knowledge who aren't doing very well. And my concern is that just the academic knowledge of Scripture certainly isn't the point of the Bible in the first place. So we're supposed to know God. That's the essence. You know, this is life that you might know me, not have memorized the verses. Although those are roots to knowing God. I'm all for it. And the, and the, the, the time in Scripture ha- has a purpose to it, and that's to know God. But the ultimate of all the universe, it seems to me, the ultimate reality of the universe is relationship. And I believe if you're Trinitarian, you have to hold to that. If you believe in Trinity, which I'm sure we all do as evangelicals, that you must believe that the ultimate reality in the universe is relationship. God exists eternally in relationship, and making me in his image, he made me a relational being. Therefore, the central flaw that the fall has introduced is a flaw in relationship. We're simply not loving God right. We're not loving others right. And the Lord has given the laws, and he summarizes the whole thing and says, I can tell you the whole point of the law. You ought to love. You ought to love me and love others. And I say, huh, that's pretty central. That kind of makes sense. That's the whole key to the whole thing. So then if a person has a problem, the problem that they have must be in their, in their, in their uh, lack of love, to put it real simplistically, I think accurately, that their way of relating to people does not reflect the God's design for relationship. And when there is going to be perfect relationship in heaven, are there going to be depressions and anorexias and homosexualities? No. The reason there are all these difficulties aside from those that have organic roots, a separate category, but aside from those that have organic roots, uh, roots, the reason there are these difficulties is simply because we're relating in ways that do not reflect God's intention. So therefore, sanctification, the process of growth as a Christian, once we're justified, we're brought back into relationship with the Lord, and then sanctification is nothing more than working out the implications of justification to learn what it means to relate more thoroughly, to relate more properly to the Lord and to each other. Um, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you know how to love Corinthians 13 all, lots of things are important but love is the greatest so it seems to me that, that, it's, that it's a proper assumption to make that beneath every problem in living with, without organic roots you're going to find an approach to relationship that's deficient and it's deficient not in terms of knowledge or technique it's deficient in terms of morals it's a moral problem not a technique problem that's why I have real objection to marriage counseling by teaching new techniques of communication you don't get at the root you don't get at the root by just teaching people, look, uh, give I messages versus you messages or whatever. And those things have value. I don't mean to knock them entirely, but they never get at the root of the thing. The root of the thing is I'm relating to you not in an inappropriate way, not in a maladaptive way, but in a sinful way. What makes it sinful? My approach to relating to you does not reflect the fact that I have confidence in God. My approach to relating to you does not reflect the fact of who I am in Christ. My approach relating to you does not reflect the fact that I'm loved, therefore I'm free to love you. I can love because he first loved, now I can move towards you with love. Now, all that is just sounds like Sunday school rhetoric a little bit, but that's kind of the underpinnings of our whole way of thinking here. And uh, so we're suggesting that what you want to look for is the moral problem of self-protection. Now, that's our phrase, and I know it's becoming a bit of a catchword, and I don't care if you want to think of other phrases for it. Uh, just call it lack of love, that's fine. Self-reliance, self-dependence, all the same thing. 
above the waterline, I'd be happy to say the question is, do I think that all sin can be defined in terms of self-protection? Ultimately, I, can, I think I'd be willing to say that, that all sin um, is a reflection of rebellion against God. I'm simply not willing to put myself in line with his commands and be obedient to him. I want to define sin primarily as a declaration of independence, pride, rebellion, all the standard kinds of phrases. And then I want to say that given that sin ultimately is a declaration of independence above the waterline, sin is going to appear as behavioral transgression of God's standards. Our problem is we limit sin to that definition as opposed to saying that sin, rebellion, pride, independence, shows itself not only in obvious ways of behavioral transgression, but also it shows itself in more subtle ways where I relate to you from the point of view of self-protection. So I don't want to make self-protection the final definition of sin, but I want to say that you must add that in order to, to comprehend the subtle expressions of sin. I want to make my core definition of sin, rebellion, independence, pride, missing the mark, and all the typical classical biblical, de uh, biblical definitions. Uh, but I want to say that until you define sin as self-protection, and in terms of its subtle expression, you're going to miss most of the ways in which we sin against each other. You know, none of us this week, I don't suppose, have lost our temper with somebody else in the seminar. I don't suppose very many of us have blatantly sinned in clear, obvious ways above the waterline. Anybody punched you this week? You know, probably hasn't happened too much. And so then we say, well, therefore, we haven't sinned against each other this week. Well, is that true? You know, as you walk along talking about the, the seminar, um, isn't it true that sometimes the comments that you make are designed that the other person know that you're following it? But why'd you do that? You know, or or maybe you're you're uh, you're pointing out some place where you strongly disagree uh, with what's been taught. Not just because you disagree and you're concerned about that. That's valid. But maybe you'd like to establish a little in-group and get somebody else to disagree along with you. Now, is that kind of thing going on? If that's going on, that's sin. Will it look like sin, or will it look like kind of honest self uh, honest discussion and kind of probing after truth and thinking things through? Until you define sin as self-protection, you miss most of our relational difficulties. We therefore assume that if the relational strategy is somehow going to be uh, somehow at the bottom, underneath whatever um, psychological problems the people present, then we're going to assume that that relational strategy is going to occur um, in the interaction between counselor and counselee. And that's where the whole idea of pull comes in. Pull is really the beginning of processing. Does that make sense to you? I know you've heard a lot about pull. You heard about it uh, when? What was Paul talked about yesterday morning? In the, that was the theme of the tape yesterday, wasn't it? Uh, let me just talk about that for just a minute, uh, just to repeat myself again until we get to some newer material. But the notion of pull is the beginning of processing in the sense that when I sit down with any, any client, when I'm kind of on duty, and by the way, don't always be on duty. You go nuts. You know, just relax. Enjoy yourself. Have a cup of coffee, you know. Um, but when, when somebody's saying to you, uh, look, I need help, or there's a struggle, whatever. You really, you really do need to go on duty. And it shouldn't be a shift from being a normal person to being a counselor. It ought to rather be a shift from, from, from being somebody who is just in, enjoying certain kinds of interactions to somebody who is saying, all right, here is a specific need, and, and as a Christian, I really do want to shift into that. I think a real measure of health is the ability to shift from casual to serious without having it feel unnatural. I think it's a real decent definition of, of some part of health, the ability to shift I mean, it's kind of natural and casual and laughing and joking and kidding and all sorts of things, whatever you might want to do. That's healthy. That's fine. To when something comes up that requires a different level of intensity, are you able to make the shift without feeling unnatural? Are you able to say, it's as much me 
to talk seriously with you about your struggles as it is me to laugh with you about a joke that I heard yesterday. Both can be equally me. It depends on what's appropriate in the given setting. Well, when I sit down and, um, and I'm aware that I'm talking with somebody who, who's, uh, who's, who's giving me a problem, um, I just talked this week with uh, one of you folks. I'm not sure if I see the person here. If you do, I'll disguise it so you won't know I'm talking about you. Um, but a particular woman, it was actually a man, um, <laughs> came to me last night. It was actually yesterday morning. and said, I'm depressed, but she really wasn't. Um, and, 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 and what she essentially said was, um, you know, I, 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 really, I really feel... Um, some, some real depression that I'm not sure what to deal with, how to deal with it. Uh, and I'm really struggling with some things. Now, when she said that to me, obviously I'm sort of on duty, and I don't mean that in a bad sense. I, I'd like to help the lady. Here's a sister who's talking to me about her problem. She's not telling me a joke. So I'm not at the level of joking back with her. I'm at the level of wanting to be, have some ministry in her life. And as she told that to me, the first thing I do when I'm on duty is I observe myself. I observe my stomach which is getting easier as the years go by. <laughs> and, and I ask, what is happening in my stomach right now as I interact with this lady? In other words, what is she pulling me to do? How is she pulling me to respond? That's the first thing I start thinking about um, when, when you talk with me. At least that's one of the first things I begin thinking about. I begin noticing the pull you have on me because I want to get to some processing so I can get to repentance, so I can be of help. Um, and, and the pull that I felt from this lady, and I, and I told her this, um, as we were chatting, I said, ma'am, um, Tell me this, do, do, do people often get angry with you? And the reason I said that was I couldn't, my, I couldn't imagine myself ever feeling free to be angry with her. Her pull on me was to treat her as a very fragile vase up on a shelf where when you carry it, you carry it very carefully, you know. And, and I felt like she was a fragile vase. That was my image of her. And the pull was be very gentle because she'll, she's brittle and she'll fall apart if you say anything with any degree of harshness at all. So make sure you're very sweet and kind. That's what she was pulling me to do, you see. As I begin to tune into that pull, uh, and, and said, has anybody been angry with you? And she said, no, people just don't, don't uh, get angry with me very often. And uh, does your husband ever get mad at you? Oh, no, never, 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 never gets mad. I asked her husband, do you ever get mad? He said, I haven't, I've never felt mad at her in all of our married years. And I'm saying, do you live together? You know. <laughs> um, because of course he's felt mad at her. Every husband's felt mad at his wife at some point. That just has to be. You know, no one's married any one other than a sinner. And so we're going to have some struggles in our marriages. Um, and I began tuning into the poll, and I said to her, you know, no one's ever gotten mad at you, and I guess I feel pulled to say nothing that would be in any way unkind for fear you'd fall apart. Now, that was the beginning of, uh, that was in the first minute of interaction. That was the beginning of just moving into her life a little bit and, and showing some things that I like to think might be somewhat helpful. I'm asked her to give me feedback by the end of the week, and I hope it'll be a little bit helpful to her and some things that we said after that. But the first thing is pull. Get a hold of the pull that you're feeling from the person, and then you begin to then, then, you, then you have some basis for forming your hypotheses. You have some basis for coming up with some ideas. You have your basis for thinking, well, I wonder, you know, is she interacting with me in a way that's pulling that from me? Is she interacting with me according to a relational strategy, according to a way of meeting people that really has at its core self-protection? Is she coming to me to love me, to minister to me, or, uh, equally valid, is she coming to me to very honestly express a concern about a problem and ask for help? Nothing's wrong with that. Nothing's incompatible with love about just genuinely asking for help. I'm all for that. But is there more to it as she genuinely asks for help? Is there some kind of a pull? And the answer is yes. Does that reflect a certain strategy 
The answer is yes. And is her strategy um, something along the lines of um, a strategy which says, um, uh, how did she put it? I, I really do have, I really do have some some real anger within me, but I know that when I express that um, in my background and my parents, when I would express any kind of a negative emotion at all, I really would get almost mercilessly beaten. Um, one woman told me at the time when she was at the dinner table and um, she expressed something about to her mother like a seven-year-old girl. She said something about, mother, the mashed potatoes are lumpy. Some sentence like that. And her dad angrily stood up and knocked her off the chair and sent her to the room without having the evening meal. Now, yeah, we hear stories like this and we say, well, that's pretty unusual. It's not. You all know it's not terribly unusual. As I say them, they sound horrible and they sound like stories out of a movie somewhere, but that's just common life. And we know that. And so what, what does she learn? That in the context of being thrown across the room and sent to her room, uh, what, what, did, what did she learn? How did, how did she feel at that point? Well, she felt real bad, right? Deep longings, not doing so good. Pretty badly unmet, a lot of pain. Now, what do you do when you're in pain? When you hurt real bad, what's your purpose? What's your goal? What's the most natural thing in the world when you're in pain? To trust the Lord, right? No. That isn't natural to fallen man. The most natural thing to do when you're in pain is to find somebody, some way to relieve pain. To find some way to uh, provide self-relievement. Is that a word? Self-protection. To assuage the pain, to calm yourself down. And so we began talking with her about, about well, uh, when, when you went back to your dad and said, Dad, I really felt so sad inside when you threw me across the room. What did he do? And you know what she said. What did she say? I never went back and said that. And I said, yeah, I know you didn't. Because that's the last thing you'd be willing to do, is to go back and to genuinely be who you are with your father for purposes of reconciliation. The last thing you'd be willing to do. Why? You want to hurt your dad? No. You don't want to get yourself hurt. Now, when you're seven years old, I'm not sure how to blame her. You know, that kind of makes sense to me. But she's not seven years old. And I said, is that pattern now continuing? Is that pattern continuing with your husband? Now, as I begin to identify those patterns, what's going to happen? Well, she's going to be hearing that. And this is a godly woman, a woman woman of real integrity and wants to grow. And she's thinking things through. And she's listening. And she's interacting. And she's seeing a lot of it. But as, as she begins to acknowledge and say, yes, I guess that's what I'm doing. Then it begins to have power, real power, when I can say, as we interact together, what did you just do that for right then? What's happening right now between us? What are you not saying to me that you, that you want to say? That's processing. You see? Here, the, here the, 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 the sequence of thought from pull to hypothesis to process. Here the sequence. From pull to hypothesis about wrong strategy. From pull to hypothesis to processing. The pull, I don't feel like I want to be angry at her. I wonder if that's significant. I wonder if there's a relational strategy which is producing that pull within me, that feeling of never being angry. So I check it out in a lot of, in a lot of situations. I check out her present situations with her husband, her past situations with her parents. And I check out the way she handles people now and I hear the pain and I hear the protection and I develop a hypothesis. And it becomes clear to me that here's a woman that is never going to be real with anybody. That's her strategy for self-protection. And when she begins to learn what it means to be real with her husband by giving up self-protection, then I predict her depression will lift. And um, I want to bring that home to her with clarity. Uh, what I can, you, know, you can't always do this, but I want to bring it home to her with clarity by then processing, meaning exposing the operation of that strategy right now as it interacts with me. Okay? And that's the essential conceptual material that I want to get across. 
So let me just pause at that point and take comments, questions, thoughts before I continue with with some refinements of what I've said. Yeah. Okay, the question has to do with, in her relationship with her dad, given what he's done, would there not be some, some real bitterness there, some lack of forgiveness, and shouldn't forgiveness be taking place, and shouldn't counselors be encouraging their clients to, to really meaningfully forgive those that have offended them? And the answer, of course, is an unqualified yes, but let me talk about it for a minute. I think I mentioned this in this morning session. Anybody in my morning session? Yeah. Let me talk about it, because it's a, it's a question that comes up a lot. I gave a workshop in um, New Jersey some time ago, and when it was over, a woman came to me and said that you didn't talk about, about um, forgiving people that have offended you. Why, why did you leave that out? Isn't that an important thing? I guess I hear that a lot, so I appreciate the opportunity to respond to it because uh, I sure think forgiveness is important. But let me talk about what it means to forgive. I have a real concern. Um, if, if I were supervising you and you were in my training program and, and you heard this woman tell the story of her father that threw her against the wall and did a lot of things like that, if... If your next sentence to her, the next gist of your movement, were to say, I, I, I wonder if you're bitter about that, and she were to say, yeah, you're going to hear on Janine's tape on Friday, um, yeah, Friday morning, you're going to hear that, that, that she's been a victim of her dad in some ways, and you're going to hear her say the words, I hate my father. Now, the, the next direction from my point of view, it, it, it may not be the best thing at that point of view to make it your next topic to talk about forgiving your dad. Do I think she should forgive her dad? Of course. Do I think it's right to hold resentment against a person who's offended you? No, that's not right. We're to forgive 70 times 7. But I want to talk about what it means to really forgive. My concern is that if you move into forgiveness at this point and kind of talk about the need for forgiveness and, and, and forgiving the Father and then kind of lead the person in a prayer of forgiveness as the person says, all right, Lord, I really do want to forgive this, this man all that he's done. My guess is you haven't dealt with the real problem that's feeding the lack of forgiveness. And what you've really done has simply uh, promoted a mechanistic substitute for meaningful forgiveness. I want real forgiveness there. My thought as to how what real forgiveness operates goes something like this. That um, I don't believe it's going to be possible for me to forgive you if I believe that what you've done really has destroyed my life. It's not going to be possible for me to forgive you if I believe that what you've done has really destroyed my life. Before then, I'm going to be able to meaningly for, meaning, meaningfully forgive. There's going to be some real need for meaningful repentance. Now, repentance, in my mind, simply means, in the Greek it simply means changing your mind, and the idea of changing your mind about what? Changing your mind about where life is, is found. It's a Jeremiah 2 idea of thirsty people going to broken cisterns. What does repentance mean? Repentance means, no, I changed my mind. There's no life here. This is not where life is. Life is in Christ. That's repentance, changing your mind about where life is. And I want to work with this woman. I want to work with Janine to help her understand. I want to work with this lady whose dad threw her against the wall. I want to work with her to help her understand that what she really is, is saying to herself, what she really is believing very deeply, is that, is that life for her, the full life, what it means to be a whole woman, what it means to be a rich human being, a loved person, a person in relationship, that life for her means having people like her dad, significant others, dad, husband, whomever, uh, interacting with her richly. 
As long as that is her essential position, any attempt at forgiveness will be shallow, and it will simply mask the real problem. What I'd rather do is work with her in terms of, do you understand that what you're doing by protecting yourself, you're putting yourself from a pain that you're saying is unbearable, rather than saying, Lord, you're the source of life, and I'm willing to move towards you, whatever that requires, that's repentance. No longer is there life in self-protection. No longer is there life in keeping myself away from seeing how I've been destroyed, but they realize I've not been destroyed, therefore I'm able to move on. That's repentance on the basis of that, on a redefinition of where life is. Now it's possible to think about your dad and to say, Dad, what you've done to me is really hideous. Maybe not saying this to him in direct words, but in your own mind. Dad, what you've done is hideous but you've not destroyed my life. You've sure hurt me a bunch. And man, do I wish you'd been different. But that I can forgive you, I can meaningfully forgive you, because my life is still hid in Christ. My life is intact. Meaningful forgiveness must be built on the realization that our life really is intact, it's hid in Christ. So I therefore would have a little bit of concern with moving too quickly into what I would think might be a mechanistic approach to forgiveness. And yet I want to emphasize forgiveness. I guess I don't use the term often enough, but I sure believe in the importance of, uh, of not holding a... Uh, on the basis of realizing that you've not been destroyed by. One of the questions in my final exam in my class back at seminary just a week or so ago had to do with, how did I put it? Um, how, how did I say it? How, how does entering into your deep disappointment about... Your, your deep disappointment about how your parents have hurt you enable you to more fully accept them. Which is the whole point of facing our deep disappointment. To be able to say, yeah, I've been deeply disappointed and that surfaces a thirst within me that makes me want to turn to the Lord and it helps me understand that even though I've been deeply disappointed by my parents, I no longer am, I, I no longer am going to require them to not disappoint me. I no longer am going to demandingly depend on them to come through for me because they're not life anymore. And now I can accept them as they really are, as people who are good in lots of ways, depending on who your parents are, and bad in a few ways or bad in a bunch of ways, depending on who your parents are. But when you're no longer requiring them to be your source of life, then you're able to accept them as they are. That's true of all relationships, true of marriage relationships. How on earth can you accept a husband who you're requiring to be what he's not? You can't. But when you're not requiring him to be what he's not, when you realize you don't need to require him for your life, to be what he's not, then you have the possibility of meaningfully accepting him, forgiving him for where he's, a, where he's offended you and hurt you, and meaningfully accepting him for who he really is. Okay? Other comments or thoughts before I move on? Anna? I think there's two different levels here. I think you're talking about this level, which I think is terribly important. Let me talk about the two levels for a minute. I think at a, at a, at a, at a deeper level, the notion of, um, of being willing to forgive and, and required to forgive, choosing to forgive, in the sense that I'm no longer requiring you to be, for my sake, what you're not. That should be true of all of us with everybody. But, at another level, for me to go, suppose you offend me really deeply, and you don't come to me and ask for my forgiveness, and you don't want to deal with that. For me to kind of seek you out, and to, and to pronounce my forgiveness upon you, I don't think that's very wise. I think the notion that if it can be done without bitterness, without a manipulative kind of a, a defensive maneuvering, I think it's perfectly appropriate at times to say that, wait a minute, um, if, if you want to be forgiven uh, by me in terms of our relationship, there's some conditions you've got to meet. Now, if down deep I'm holding it against you in a nasty, bitter way, that's my problem. But if I've dealt with that, but still up here, I don't kind of pronounce the forgiveness in area, everything's fine. Everything isn't fine. You've offended me. And until you're willing to deal with that, we've got problems. 
you know, as, as, as long as the deeper issue of not requiring someone to be different is taken care of, as long as that's taken care of, then I agree with you. It's the wife telling the husband, you know, honey, the, the way you're dealing with our family um, really strikes me as wrong. And what you must understand is if you continue living like that, um, you're going to have a hurting wife who's not going to respect what you're doing. And I think that's a very appropriate, ministering, loving, submissive thing to do. I have no problem with that at all. Other questions about the idea that we've discussed so far, the full hypothesis processing before we move on. Yeah. Um, you know, I know we don't proof text everything. Where would you go for the biblical theology of Sure. Let me let me tell you to read a book that'll be out in about a year. <laughs> the book that I'm almost finished writing now, the first five chapters is what do I mean by the word biblical? Um, because that's that's a very fair question to be asked. I call this uh, instead of biblical counseling. And yet I talk about processing. Where does the Apostle Paul in Ephesians say, here's my definition of processing? Here's my definition of pull. It's not there. So obviously you are, uh, you are. I, I am saying that you need to develop a biblical theology as opposed to uh, biblical texting or, or proof texting. It seems to me that, that the way to argue theologically as opposed to exegetically in a narrow sense of the word is to, is to start with the basic anthropological data that we've given, been given. You know, start with the image bearer concept. Go from that to the four circles, which I think can be biblically defended very easily. Go from that to saying that man really is a relational being who is going to pursue broken cisterns. This is all kind of an inferential theological development here. To say that man really is a sinful being who is going to pursue broken cisterns for his satisfaction, and those broken cisterns are going to be something in the area of relationship because I was built for relationship. Therefore, I'm going to use relationships to bring satisfaction to myself. Now, if I'm using relationships, you're going to feel the impact of that. So it just to me is a matter of inferentially moving further away. Now, when you go as far away from the essential biblical data as the word pull takes us, then you're in the area of something which is biblically supportable but not biblically necessary. Now, I just find the concept of pull terribly consistent with my understanding of how people move towards broken cisterns, with how people who are relational beings don't turn towards a source of real relationship, but I sure can't give you a text for pull, therefore I wouldn't insist that this be some concept that be central to all of your thinking. But I would argue that man in relation to be central to all your thinking, and therefore I think that the pull idea is a way of amplifying and clarifying what I think is, 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 is clearly taught in, uh, in different passages. But it is It's becoming a centerpiece in the sense at a technique level that it's, it's one useful methodology in my uncovering what I think is your real problem. Sure, that's true. And you see, there, uh, when I say it's biblically supportable but not biblically necessary, if you can find a better way, a better methodology to really expose the real problem, man, I'm wide open. And I'll be glad next year to forget about pull and teach something else because the idea of pull is not biblically necessary. Hear the point on that? I really want you to hear that. I don't want to sound defensive. I don't feel defensive because I'm willing to say I can't find a text for it. But I do want you to hear me say that I find it useful to move in directions that are clearly biblical. Find me a more effective methodology and I'll buy it in a second. Okay? Is that clear what I'm saying? We can yeah. say then it is biblical and then you're finding out the methodology to support it. That's not defined in the Bible, but you're filling in the methodology to to carry out that's what is biblical. Sure. To hold somebody accountable is biblical. Sure. And you're giving the methodology. Methodology for doing that. Yes, you can do that. Sure. Which, of course, is, uh, is, is necessary to do in all forms of life. You know, local churches do many, many things which are not in the scriptures, but they're useful ways of accomplishing biblical purposes. 
We're commanded to meet for worship, but don't have to have an opening hymn. But an opening hymn is a good way to do it, maybe. And if you like the doxology, you're not required to do that, but it's maybe kind of a nice way to begin a worship service. Now, if you find a better way, do that. So I think that's my, that's my move towards it, yeah. But I really would urge you, by the way, I'm really anxious to get this, get this book out because um, that, that's been a very valid question that I wrestle with the seminary a whole lot with a lot of my fellow professors up there. Um, this, what does the word biblical mean? And I've really worked hard to spell out what I mean by it in the first five chapters of this new book, so I'm anxious to get that out for public critique. All right, let me uh, move along then. Yeah. Okay, you're trying to get into some kind of heated debate here, are you, Bob? The <laughs> <laughs> question is, uh, could we give some illustrations of some rather typical pulls, some common kinds of things, and then suggest that there might be some, uh, some, some sex-linked pulls? Maybe some polls that the guys normally give versus some polls that the ladies normally give. And I think there are some distinctions between men and women. Have you noticed? <laughs> that go way beyond the obvious. Um, and I think there are some. Yeah, be glad. Yeah, essentially, when I use the word pull, let me just kind of give it a technical thing. It's what's happening in my stomach. And I, I, I really mean that. Um, yeah, that when I interact with you, um, that my manipulative strategy is going to produce in your stomach a tendency to want to do something with me. And that tendency that you're going to feel in response to me, call that pull. Call that pull a response to my manipulative strategy. Okay? Okay? So let's talk about some of the, um, some of the common kinds of strategies which produce pulls. Is that a fair way of saying your question, Bob? To incorporate it with this latest question? What are some typical strategies which produce pulls? What are the common kind of things you're going to, you're going to feel? Um, I don't have any list here, so I'm just going to kind of top of the head, and y'all can join in and add better ones if you, if you can think of them. I think one of the most common ones with a guy, I think there's basically guys that go between one of two extremes. Uh, one of the most common ones with a guy is the, is the pull to somehow... Uh, move away from responsibility getting someone else to in some form take care of. So many, many times when things come up in our family life, I'm really at a rather profound, deep level scared to take hold of it. I don't like making mistakes. Why would I not like making mistakes? What's the next sentence? I wouldn't like making mistakes because something about my belief about life. Pardon? So is my inadequacy. Why would I not want to show my inadequacy? Because I get rejected. What's wrong with rejection? Well, it hurts. Yeah, my value depends on it. Don't you hear a belief there? Don't you hear a belief in us? And, and I think uh, it's really typical of a male, not exclusively there, female too, but typical of a male, that there's a belief which says that somehow my value, I can look in the mirror with some measure of self-respect, my value depends on my competence. My value depends on my ability to handle certain things. Why is it that so many guys that are terribly ineffective husbands and fathers are great professionals, great businessmen, great CPAs, great doctors, great lawyers, great pastors, at least in terms of skills behind a pulpit, maybe. Not sure about heart sometimes. Why is that? 
Well, because there's a real belief inside of us that says that we're going to go where we feel competent. And therefore, it seems to me that there's going to be many times when my strategy at home with my wife, when a problem comes up, and I feel a certain threat. If I take hold of the situation, it might not turn out right, and I'm going to be exposed as a fool that I really am, and there's no life there. Because life for me is being seen as a competent person. That's my definition of life. That's sinful, but that's my definition of life. Sometimes. Therefore, when a problem comes up, maybe I'll go to my wife and very warmly and in a godly style, at least apparently, I'll say to her, honey, uh, we need to interact about what to do with the kids. What are your thoughts? And is that wrong? Well, of course not. She's my helper. She's my partner. Shouldn't I consult with her? Of course I should. You see, here's where sin gets subtle. You tell a guy, don't consult with your wife in order to be godly? No, that's nonsense. So did you tell a guy to consult with your wife? Well, yeah, but the issue is you're not going to get down to holiness until you get down to motivation. And so as I move towards my wife, maybe my strategy is I really want to have confirmed that what I'm doing is something she thinks is pretty smart before I make a decision. So I say, honey, let's kind of pray about this together and think about it together. What I'm, what I'm really doing is making sure that I'm not going to do something dumb which she's going to jump on before. Now maybe, maybe the pull she's going to feel then is going to be what? If you said to her, right, so what's the pull that Larry has on you when he comes to you about the kids? What's the pull? What would she say that's happening in her stomach? What does she feel like doing? Doesn't she feel like coming up with making decisions, having some strong ideas, kind of sort of taking care of poor little Larry? You know? And it's not going to come out that way, though. I mean, it's going to seem above the surface like we're having a good conversation. She's going to leave it saying, why do I not feel close to him right now? Why do I feel, yeah, you know, like I don't like him a whole bunch at the moment? See, we just had a good conversation about our kids. He asks about our kids, he talks to me about our kids, he loves our kids, he's interacting about our kids. I don't like it. Now what's she going to say? See, what's wrong with me? I've got to ask the Lord to forgive me for a bad attitude towards Larry and go try to love him a little bit more. What she ought to do is say, I feel like taking care of the little guy. What's the matter with him? You know, what, what did I marry here? And then what she ought to say is, what does it mean to be submissive to a man who behaves like that? And she identifies that what's happening in her stomach is a product of my strategy. I again mentioned this at some group this week that oh, a week or two ago, whenever, when I was really struggling with a few things and just feeling really bad about something, and um, we had to make a decision. And, um, and I kind of made a stormy-type decision. And it was a dumb decision, but I made it to make a decision. You know, one of those sort of things. Why do I do this? Excuse me. <laughs> and my wife's response, I just think, was such a perfect example of courage and godliness. Because she knew I was feeling really fragile, I was hurting really bad, and I was being very defensive in my stupid, noisy decision. And her response to me was to say, um, Larry, I don't think that's a good idea at all. She really confronted me. She wasn't taking care of me. She wasn't looking out for me. She wasn't saying, if she gave in to my pull, it would have been, well, that, that's, that's good, Larry. That, that's fine if you think that's best. No, she was more courageous than that. She took the risk of me verbally abusing her. And when she said to me, Larry, I think you're making a mistake. I don't think you ought to do that. Well, I'll tell you, I felt strengthened. That brought me out of it a whole lot quicker than if she'd have given in and just been real sweet and supportive and submissive in the bad sense of that word. So one pull, it seems to me, is to, is to, um, uh, that men do is they we really want to back away from difficult situations and so we put on other people uh, the responsibility to somehow come through and be strong for us. And we feel a pull to somehow take care of the weak man. That's one pull. The other, the other, the opposite of that, another typical male strategy, and that's to come across like a bull. 
where the, uh, where the man simply takes hold of things way more firmly than he has any sense uh, that he has a right to. But he's doing it as a way of proving something. And then the pull that you feel uh, when a person's acting like that is what? What do you feel when you're around somebody who's real sure of themselves and just taking hold of things, real macho and all that? What is the pull that you feel? Now, don't be critical. Just be natural. What is your natural response when somebody in a very effective way takes hold of things? to back away, to give in, to go along with. There are a lot of possibilities. And then the guy feels very, very affirmed in the fact that he got a following. You see? Those are two very standard uh, strategies and polls with guys. Women, I don't know. What are some women's strategies and polls? All right, rescue kind of a thing. Say more about that. What do you mean? Yeah, kind of a little girl sort of a thing. I really found myself annoyed with myself in the way I dealt with Janine. Um, I think it's in the first tape that you saw. When I talked to Mike and Janine about their pull and said, Mike, I just feel like you're wanting me to take care of you like some little boy. Remember I said that in the first tape? And I said that sort of like that. But then I turned to Janine and said very warmly. It wasn't very warm to Mike. But I was really warm to Janine. And I said, Janine, I, I just would love to be of help. <laughs> now, as it turned out, yeah, I just got sucked into her pole. Now, there's some legitimate pain in the woman. There's no question of that. And nothing's wrong with wanting to, to help a person legitimate pain. Don't feel bad about that. And do understand that there is such a thing as positive pull. Pull is not always a bad word. You know, uh, the idea of a godly person who draws you to wanting to respect him and get wise advice from him and to know the Lord that he obviously knows so well. There's a pull. I heard, uh, some of you know J. Sidlow Baxter. Heard him preach in Bible Town of Florida five, six years ago. And um, I don't know the person, the man at all, but I heard him preach several times. And man, he, he pulled me you know, in a wonderfully good way. He pulled me to want to know the Lord better. He talks that he talked about his wife had just died a little bit before he preached. And he's talking about Ethel. And as he talked, he kind of looked up, you know, there's Ethel up there. They talked about, he says, I want to die before the rapture. I don't want a big crowd when I go up there, you know. <laughs> I want to see the Lord and Ethel, just the, just the three of us, having a good time, you know. And as he's talking like that, uh, you know, it, didn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't hokey, it was rich. And I was pulled, and I wanted to know the Lord the way that man did. Pull can be a very positive word. Don't hear the word pull negative all the time. But women are going to pull sometimes to want to want to get you to rescue them. You're going to feel very protective and very manly and very strong and very macho and have a real nice neurotic relationship. Other kind of polls, women. Anything else quickly? Yeah, all right. Sure, the precise opposite of please rescue me, I'm a little girl. The other kind of extreme, and I guess maybe there, is a, there are two endpoints of a continuum in both sexes, and the other endpoint of the continuum for the lady is not so much to rescue but to be the rescuer. When I talk with uh, women, um, I, I guess there really is a point to this. I haven't talked this through much, but when I talk to women, I'm very aware of, of at least two categories, women, when I talk to them. And, and one category is the woman who my, my little image is, there's kind of a, a knot in their stomach, like a big thick rope that's been put into a knot and been pulled by two horses. You just can't get the knot untied. It's kind of a, <clears throat> a knot. And as they smile, it's stiff. And as they say they like you, they like you. And they're just, you know, they're, they're strong. They're tough. And... and um, and my, my image as I work with a person like that is you're the last person in the world I ever want to hug. You know, I don't feel like hugging you at all. I don't feel like hugging a woman. 
Uh, that means something's wrong somewhere. Uh, well, we want to be careful with that. Um, but what I, I really do kind of mean that. I don't, I don't mean to have a little cheap joke there. That's not my point. But what I do mean is that when a woman comes across as very tight, as opposed to the soft. Now, the word competent and soft can go together, but so often it's one or the other. It ought to be both. One with a knot in her stomach is the woman who's going to take care of the world. Going to take care of the world. A woman I know who was who um, worked with me for for some period of time. She she absolutely took care of me. She demanded the opportunity to take care of me, and for a while it was really nice. Until I got more and more offended. Don't take care of me. You know what do you think I am? I can take care of myself, woman. And um, it just really caused some real difficulties. Uh, so the woman who's going to take care kind of has a pull of, of, of uh, be, be kind of helpless. Be, be a little weak. And then she can fulfill, fulfill her role of finding her broken cistern and being kind of a strong, taking care of sort of a woman. <clears throat> I'm not sure. Yeah, when I talk about positive pull, I, I just don't want, the, don't, don't want the word pull to be entirely a negative word. I want the word pull to be a word that, um, that can also communicate uh, whatever effect I have on you. It could be positive, it could be negative. And ultimately, I suppose the definition of a positive pull would be that my life is going to draw you towards the things of God. And that would be a positive pull. Now, you might make that a little less spiritual sounding, and, and um, if I'm just a friendly guy, and as you're around me, you just kind of enjoy being alive, because I'm sort of nice and affirming. That's a positive pull. I don't even know Skip Gray. Skip here, I don't want to embarrass him if he is. You know Skip, director of the Navigators? Uh, we had dinner with him last night. And I'll tell you, he just pulled me all over the place. And it was great. I felt important. I felt, I felt warmed. I felt uh, in, the, in, the, in the presence of somebody who wanted to, to be nice to me. I just felt super. I just left feeling, see, that was a great evening. And I took his hand warmly and said, man, you've been encouraging to me tonight. A lot of positive pull. So ultimately toward the Lord, but... Maybe more simply, I just, just felt nice, felt good to be alive. Some human being, kind of nice to me. Sure, sure nice. He'll draw him into himself, sure. Positive pull, sure. Yeah, that's the ultimate example of positive pull. Do I teach the counseling the concept of pull because there is an advantage? One of the things that's artificial about the tapes that you're watching is Mike and Janine have been uh, in my core lectures every week. <laughs> you do understand that's a little artificial. Um, and so they have some of the conceptual material down. No, I don't, I don't really teach the concept of pull at all. I don't teach it as, a, as a, a lecture. Now, let me teach you the concept of pull. I'll start using the word sometimes. I, I guess I'm feeling a little bit, um, a little bit bad at the moment. Uh, it's almost like the word pull is the theme of the week. I don't really want that. Um, I don't want that to be the pivotal point of everything. That to me is just one little methodological thing which is very, very useful. But I want, the, I want the theme of the week to be that we're longing beings who are dumb enough to go away from God. And the real key is to repent of the stupidity and go back to the Lord. That's kind of what I want the theme of the week to be. And That's right. And since most of us are not cued into our protective strategies, then the pull can be one way of starting to tune into that, but let's not make a fetish out of the word pull. And let's just make sure that the word pull is a very effective and helpful thing in tuning us in to that which is getting in the way of relationships so we can do what we're saved to do better, which is love. 
and be more effective as we move along. All right, let me just let me give some more formal definitions of processing and move into that a little bit more clearly. We will take just a stretch break in a little bit, but let me give a little more conceptual material. Let me give you a real elegant definition of processing, which will confuse you entirely. And then I'll say it simply. Am I in the outline somewhere? Yeah, I think I am. Yeah, the second page of your outline. I don't think I've copied the numbered. 163, okay. You see that uh, B and C on the, on the top of one page, pole below the waterline phenomena, and then C tuning into CE's pole? I'm, I'm, I've kind of gone beyond all that. I'm assuming all that, okay? Isn't, isn't that clear? You can fill in the blanks there, can't you? That pole is below the waterline phenomena. You know, I come to you and I say, hi, how you doing? Above the waterline, I'm just a friendly guy. you got to go below the waterline to get into pole. That's all I mean by that. Simple as that. Uh, you know, I go and give my wife a big hug. Um, above the waterline, any problem? Sounds super. To get into the area of pull and processing, you've got to go below the waterline. So, so pull and processing become below the waterline functions. As far as tuning into the counselee's pull, I've already said what I want to say about that, I think. I just want to encourage us to ask, what do we feel like doing in response to the counselee? And you can be asking that very quickly. What do we feel like never doing? What would we never do with this counselee? Well, I'd never get mad. I'd never be direct. I'd always be gentle. Or maybe I'd get mad a lot. Or maybe I'd take care of. But just tune into what's happening inside of you as you interact with people. And, and as you do that, it's just going to open up a whole new dimension of our relationship in a very positive way. In a positive way of being able to help others. In a positive way of being able to repent of your own problems. And in a positive way of being able to enjoy others. As I said at dinner last night with Skip, I just tuned into the fact that my stomach just felt great. I wanted to tell him things about my life. I wanted to let him know who I was. I wanted to experience an encouragement. And as I tuned into my own pull, I just was nice. It enriched our fellowship. As he gave thanks for the food, he said, Lord, thanks for the sweetness of Christian fellowship. And my first thought was, will it be sweet tonight? And as the next hour and a half, it was sweet as it could be. It was great. You know, tune into your pool, you'll enjoy your life a little bit. Um, now I'll go down to the third here. I want to talk about um, using here and now pull to expose wrong strategies. Under that, let me just give a definition of processing. I haven't given that yet, really, have I? Let me give a definition of processing under that. Point A, I give it a, a very broad definition of processing as identifying pull as a part of the counselee's wrong strategy, but let me give a more elaborate definition than that under 3A. Here's my elaborate definition. Processing can be defined this way. The immediate, the immediate, unspoken, Consciously or pre-consciously intended, I love this string of words, folks, the immediate, unspoken, consciously or pre-consciously intended, relational implications, almost done, consciously or pre-consciously intended, relational implications, of interpersonal transactions. <laughs> the immediate, unspoken, consciously or pre-consciously intended relational implications of interpersonal transactions. Now, it's a bunch of words, but they all do mean something. So let me just say, it, say what the words mean. It is immediate. What's happening right now in the here and now? 
Are we aware of how rarely in our conversations we deal with the immediate? We very rarely deal with what is immediately going on right now between you and me. Basically, I gave a little bit of of immediacy when I said this a few minutes ago. I just tuned into myself and said, I'm feeling a little bad that pulls the theme. I hadn't planned to say that. That was an immediate sentence. That was coming out of me right at the moment. That wasn't something Dan and I had talked about and I wanted to correct. That was rather immediate sort of a thing. Immediate. Something which we're rather uncomfortable with, with, with doing. We were always prepared somehow. Are you saying the process of Oh, dear. If you're asking me for more technical things than I tend to think about. Uh, let me think. The processing, I want to call a technique. When I think of processing, what I mean by processing is really tuning into all this stuff. Yeah. To, to process is to, is to highlight these things that are happening in the immediate. Okay? That's a fair question. Thank you for helping me clarify. It's immediate, point one. It's unspoken. Rarely am I going to be saying, right now, what I want from you is. That simply isn't going to be said. It's unspoken. It's there, but it's unspoken. It's happening right now, but it's not being said directly. So it's immediate and unspoken. It happens by words. But... Yeah, it happens by words, but, but the words themselves aren't expressing what the, what the pull is. Then it's consciously or pre-consciously intended. Do you hear what the word pre-consciously means? You know what conscious means, obvious, obviously. It means that the person's aware of pulling it, aware of what's happening right now. But pre-conscious is just kind of a little technical phrase, which means that the person is not aware of what he's doing, but he could be made aware uh, without too much difficulty. The person's aware of, the person's not aware of what he's doing, but he could be made aware of what he's doing without too much difficulty. You know, somebody will say to me, um, you know, I'm not really sure how the talk went. Well, there's something immediate there. What is, what's he doing right now, immediately? And immediately, what he's really saying, right at this moment, is he's insecure and wants affirmation. Now, did he say that? I'm insecure, want affirmation? No, so it's unspoken. Now, is he aware of it? Well, no, he's just kind of thinking about it. He gave a talk. He's kind of curious to see how well it went. But if I were to say to him, you know, it seems to me like you're really feeling insecure and you want me to affirm you. Well, if it's pre-conscious, he'll be able to go, huh. Yeah, yeah, I guess that is kind of it. Huh. Bit of a new thought, but rather easily brought to the surface. That's all I mean by pre-conscious. Who knows? <laughs> well, um, when I use the word pull, understand that I'm talking about what's happening in my stomach. And I'm the counselor now, you're the counselee. And what's happening in my stomach, in terms of my inclination to respond to you, that's, that's the pull. When I say you're, you're, you're pulling from me something, it's with what I feel like doing towards you. But what you're doing towards me is, 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 is basically your wrong strategy, and I want to process that wrong strategy by calling it into focus right now. Processing is calling into focus your wrong strategy as I experience the pull of it. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To learn more, visit LargerStory.com.